of journalism is to question the prevailing wisdom. Question the prevailing wisdom. Just speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. All rights reserved and affirmed. Free all minds. These are weapons of mass These descent. Are weapons of mass descent. Welcome to Uprising, a daily digest of independent news analysis, investigation, education, artistic expression, and activism. It's Tuesday, May 31st, 2011, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. It just makes me stop and think. 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 Silence is not an option. Why we get fat and what to do about it. An hour special on the science and origins of obesity with a word winning science journalist and author Gary Tobbs. My eyes drop when the out, but I can't help myself why should I? This is Uprising. Good morning and welcome to Uprising. These days, obesity and its related health problems are a national obsession for doctors, politicians, and public health officials. Childhood obesity has reached epidemic proportions in the U.S. in recent years, with obesity rates sharply increasing for children as young as six months old. With higher obesity rates more prevalent among poorer Americans, obesity and all the public health consequences of it become an issue of social and economic justice. Now a new book by science journalist Gary Tobbs synthesizes 10 years of research into the reasons behind obesity. The book is simply called Why We Get Fat. In it, Tobbs makes a damning case about how the science linking dietary fat to heart disease and obesity was seriously misreported, leading to government agencies prescribing a low-fat and, in effect, high-carbohydrate diet that is precisely the recipe for obesity and its related diseases. 30 years of increasing obesity rates coinciding with pushing such a diet is a testament to a public health policy gone horribly wrong. Tobbs asserts that it is a tendency among health professionals and health reporters to link obesity to individual failings that has perverted the interpretation of the existing science. We don't get fat because we overeat, says Tobbs. We overeat because we're getting fat. Gary Tobbs is an award-winning science journalist, a contributing correspondent for Science Magazine, a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation investigator in health policy research at UC Berkeley's School of Public Health, and he joins me now for the hour. Welcome to Uprising. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, reading your book, and I I confess I read it uh, cover to cover within two days because it was difficult to put down. Um, Reading your book makes, you know, in in many ways it's heartening but also depressing. Heartening because it uh, can confirm a lot of things that people personally experience in their struggles to lose weight. Depressing because you realize just how much bad science has been perpetrated uh, over decades now leading so many of us to believe that um, that uh, obesity is the linked to high fat diseases rather than high carbohydrate diseases uh, ra- rather than high carbohydrate diets. Uh, how exactly did it happen that this notion that a, that uh, fat dietary fat was found to be linked to heart disease in the first place? Well, there's some the the, the couple of sort of paradigms clashed in the 1950s and the 1960s. 
Um, until the 1960s, the conventional wisdom was that carbohydrates were fattening. Bread, pasta, potatoes, uh, beer, sweets, anything with sugar in it. And um, in the late 1950s, a University of Minnesota nutritionist named Ansel Keys decided personally that dietary fat caused heart disease. He was a very zealous energetic fellow when he started pushing and he got involved with the American Heart Association. The American Heart Association got behind this idea when there was absolutely you know, virtually no data to support it. It was at best just a hypothesis that had to be tested. And the problem is that if you're going to tell people that dietary fat causes heart disease, you want them to eat low-fat diets, so you replace the fat in the diet with carbohydrate-rich foods. And the uh, starches and our... Uh, very low in fat, if not fat-free. So suddenly, all these foods that, uh, you know, women for decades had thought were uniquely fattening and had been taught not to eat, all these foods that, if you went into hospitals, medical school hospitals in the 1940s and 1950s, the diets for obesity, uh, the first thing that they prohibited were starchy vegetables, you know, potatoes, rice, bread, anything with carbohydrates and sweets. Suddenly, these foods became fat-free, heart-healthy diet foods based on virtually no significant science whatsoever. Hmm. And the American Heart Association got behind it. Then the journalists got behind it because they believed the American Heart Association knew what they were talking about. And once the journalists got behind it, the uh, politicians got behind it, and the politicians pushed the National Institutes of Health and the health agencies and by the 1980s, this low-fat, high-carb diet as good health had become locked into the nutritional dogma. And as you put it in the introduction, it's, it's precisely the diet that leads to obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and maybe even cancer. Now, we think about obesity as being a relatively modern uh, effect, but in your book, you cite uh, example after example of populations going back to the late 1800s, the ni- early 1900s, uh, where you see populations where obesity and diabetes rates are very high, uh, particularly among Native American populations. Uh, this is something I think that this history is something that, that people know little about. What could that history have told us or taught us about uh, about uh, how to eat properly? Well, and this is, we have this obesity epidemic today that we're all obsessed with, which is obesity rates in the past, since the late 1970s, early 1980s, coincident again with this adoption of the low-fat, good health doctrine. Obesity rates have gone up about two and a half fold. Diabetes diagnoses since 1980 have tripled in the U.S. And so what the research community does is they say, look, there's all this obesity, there's all this diabetes, there's fast food joints everywhere, and whenever I drive by a fast food joint, I see fat people eating in them. Um, nobody's physically active. I never see, you know, obese people working out in the gym like I work out. Therefore, the reason we're obese today is because of all the fast food joints and all the easily available tasty food and the junk food that I personally don't like. And um, I mean, I sound a little bit facetious here, but this is kind of literally the way these people think. And what they never stop to do is just the simple scientific exercise of seeing if they could find counterexamples to this idea that obesity is caused by this toxic environment we live in today, which is fast food joints and junk food and a lack of, you know, too many TVs and computers and video games, so we're all sedentary. 
So what I did in my research, I just went back to the literature uh, obsessively and compulsively looking for places where people measured obesity rates in populations that didn't have the kind of toxic environment we live in today. Mm -hmm. You could start with the Native Americans, the Pima Indians in 1902, um, Sioux uh, living on a, on, a, on a reservation in South Dakota in 1928, and then beginning in the late 1950s, you get a lot of these studies, African Americans in Charleston, South Carolina, you know, Bantu pensioners in South Africa, Chilean factory workers, with all of them having rates of obesity as high or even higher than we have in the United States today, but with no fast food joints, no junk food, no big gulps, no... And they're not no, sedentary populations either, many of them. They're not. Some of these are very hard work. And, you know, Chilean factory workers engaged in manual labor or Mexican-American oil field laborers in, in the early 1980s. Um, so you could, you know, if, again, if you just look at it as a science, which in theory it is, you'd say these are counterexamples to my hypothesis. Something is making these people fat because we don't see obesity in We don't see chronic obesity in nature and any animals, you know, only popular the species that, that manifests it is man. So something is making these people fat. What is it? And the one thing they all have in common is they're poor. And poor populations live on carbohydrate-rich diets because the carbs are the cheapest part of the diet. And in virtually all cases, they had relatively high sugar consumption, or at least sugar was new to their diet in pretty high quantities. Hmm. I want to just remind our listeners that I'm speaking with Gary Taubes. He's an award-winning science journalist. We're discussing his new book, Why We Get Fat and What to Do About. His, his earlier book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, was highly reviewed. So one of the things that uh, was also fascinating about your book was the uh, issue of exercise. The elusive benefits of exercise is a whole chapter that you have. And of course, it is easy to blame people who are overweight for being sedentary. But what you show is that there's actually not much evidence to support that exercise necessarily leads to weight loss. And this is pretty shocking because this is at the heart of, you know, personal trainers and, and nutritionists and, and, and physical therapists uh, uh, who deal with issues of obesity. Well, this is one of the, um, you know, we, we came to believe, actually, excuse me, one second while I clear my throat. Sure. Gary Tobbs is my guest. Are you there? I'm here. Okay, so we, we came to believe, actually, prior to World War II, the um, Europeans had a very different, European researchers and clinicians had a very different uh, view of what caused overweight and obesity, and they thought it was caused, it was a, a very, to them it was very obviously a hormonal disorder that couldn't be modulated by how much we exercised, or even to any great extent by how we tried to con, you know, control how much we ate. And then after the Second World War, uh, American researchers thought, well, we don't, we don't really care what these Europeans had to say. A lot of them were Germans and Austrians, and we're done with those people. So they reinvented the field of obesity, and they turned it all into this basically gluttony and sloth issue. And it's always been virtually impossible to show that people can lose weight by consciously trying to eat less. You know, you put them on calorie-restricted diets, they don't work. So lately, we've obsessed over this idea, if it's not eating less that solves it, exercising more must solve it, increasing your energy expenditure. And there's simply never been any evidence. I mean, you, they, people have been doing clinical trials on this for 30, 40 years, trying to demonstrate that you could get people to weigh less 
by having them expend more energy over the course of the day, and it just doesn't come out. In fact, the American Heart Association, the American College of Sports Medicine, a few years ago put out joint obesity guidelines, a joint physical activity guidelines, and in their guidelines they said, you know, this idea that if you increase energy expenditure, uh, you should uh, decrease the probability of you know, gain weight over the years is is an interesting idea, but the data to support it are simply not compelling. And the point I bring out in the book is that this idea is 150 years old. And if the best you can say about it, the best that proponents of physical exercise can say about it are the data are not compelling, there's a good chance that your underlying hypothesis is wrong. And let's talk about that underlying hypothesis, the whole calories in, calories out hypothesis that uh, basically, you know, what you put into your body versus what you expend through energy, uh, the the difference between the two is what you might gain as weight. Uh, if it's a negative difference, you would lose weight. Uh, but that doesn't say anything about internal body chemistry and about how our hormones, particularly the one hormone, insulin, which is the most important hormone when it comes to why we store fat, uh, how that works. So, so let's get into a little bit of biochemistry about what insulin does and why it belies this notion of uh, the, the, the basis of uh, what we know about obesity, the calories in, calories out theory. Oh, and this is, you know, on the face of it, it's funny. We all grew up believing there's calories in, calories out, at least, you know, in the last half century in the United States we did. And it seems so intuitively obvious that we never question it. But you, if you start thinking about it, like if I give you a, you know, a very lean, like a lean basketball player and a, and a you know, overweight offensive lineman in football, you would never reasonably think the only difference between them is how much they eat and how much they exercise. These people are built differently. Their bodies are genetically, you know, the, the, the basketball player is genetically determined to be lean and the football player is genetically determined to gain weight easily. That's what they do. And if you look in, this is the way the pre-World War II Europeans thought about it. And if you, if you go, if you just look at what hormones regulate fat accumulation, for instance, sex hormones are obviously involved because men and women fatten differently. Boys and girls, when they go through puberty, the boys lose fat and gain muscle, and the girls gain fat in specific areas of their body to, you know, drive the boys crazy, basically. And so there are obviously hormones involved, and by the early 1960s, it was clear that the hormone that fundamentally works to put fat in fat tissue is the hormone insulin. All other hormones, for the most part, work to get fat out of the fat tissue because they're basically telling making fuel available to do whatever the body is supposed to do under the, you know, signaling of these hormones. Insulin stores fat. That's what it does. And if you raise your insulin levels, you can't get fat out of your fat tissue, and your lean tissue, your muscles and your organs, won't burn the fat for fuel if your insulin levels are high. And insulin levels are regulated by carbohydrates. For all intents and purposes, it's the type of carbs we eat and the quantity of carbs that determine what your insulin levels are over the course of a day and over the long term. And so by the early 1960s, it was clear that carbohydrates, in fact, should make us fat. That if there's a reason why we're getting fat, that the carbs in the diet should be the first culprit. And like I said, we just we got rid of it because it, it clashed. And you, I could actually, you know, I charted how this happened. It, it simply clashed with this idea that dietary fat caused heart disease. So the fact that biochemists and physiologists and endocrinologists, people who study hormones, 
had very carefully worked out the regulation of the fat tissue and specifically fingered the carbohydrates as the cause of obesity was considered irrelevant. And whenever you tell someone, you know, you get fat because you eat too much or when you go to the doctor and the doctor says the way to get thin again is to stop, you know, is to work out more and eat less, they are completely ignoring the regulation of the fat tissue. And it's as though they're, they're acting like, you know, I don't know, 16th century witch doctors. Hmm. Because it's easy to blame the fat person. It's easy to blame the fat person. And fat people, obese people do eat more than lean, and they certainly want to eat more than lean people because they're losing all these calories into their fat tissue and they're getting bigger. And it's so like a growing that, child. that drive, that uh, appetite, that's another thing that doctors don't account for. When you exercise, you gain an appetite. When you are already overweight and have consumed a lot of carbohydrates, you want to consume more carbohydrates. So that's the, you know, it, it, it's the, uh, it's relegated. We're relegated. Uh, those of us, you know, who have problems with weight are relegated to live in semi-starvation in order to even approach trying to lose weight. Right, and it doesn't work. All it does, living in semi-starvation makes you expend less energy. Hmm. <clears throat> so now you're sedentary as well because you don't have the energy to go out and work out. And it's just, it's, 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 a, it's, almost, it's, a, you know, it's a tragic situation, in effect, what happened, where it is this, what's considered this great triumph of modern medicine, the, the idea that a low-fat diet is a healthy diet, and this is, you know, we should all be lowering our cholesterol and LDL is, is the precise cause of all these diseases that are that are now epidemic in America. Hmm. Um, and on the top of it, the people who get these disorders, the people who get fat and obese, are blamed for it. They just don't have enough willpower. The doctors don't want to deal with them. I've heard this over and over again. Actually, Jerome Grobman writes about this in his book about how physicians think. He says doctors don't want to deal with these obese diabetic patients because they know that these people won't take their advice. And my argument to that is if the advice was correct, the people might be able to take it. Of course. I mean, it's it's we we've almost come to the point where we've uh, seemed to accept that people are obese because they choose to be obese. But who would choose to be obese? Well, and that's, there have been studies in children suggesting that the the um, the, the, uh, the life I forget the term they use. You know, the the, the, the obese children are basically um, a less content with their lives than children with cancer on chemotherapy. Wow. And that's hard to it's believe. because of the social uh, stigmas, of course, against obesity. The social stigma, the inability to uh, participate in, in physical and in, in gym classes with the other kids. To, you know, and I see it even in my side. I have a five-year-old, and I see it in his school. And, you know, they always want to get these kids running around the tracks. And in the front... You know, will always be the, 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 the short, lean kids who just fly right over the grass. And in the back will be these two or three obese children who are plodding along, who are, in effect, being tortured hmm. so, uh, by their well-meaning instructors. Let's talk about, briefly, two, two last questions. One issue is dietary fat, right? If dietary fat is not linked to heart disease, are there ill effects of dietary fat? Can one, is it possible to eat too much dietary fat and get sick as a result? Um, well, I guess if one sat down with cans of lard in front of <laughs> yourself and just spooned it in, it could indeed happen. Um, but again, the point I'm making in these books is the evidence implicating dietary fat, saturated fat in particular, in the, be in, in the beginning was overinterpreted. It was simplified. It was, you know, people cherry-picked. They took the data they liked and they left out the data that, that 
refuted their hypotheses. And then since the 1980s, study after study after study has, in effect, refuted the idea that saturated fat and all fat is bad for you. And in the past year, there have been three, the past two years, three systematic reviews by different groups of doctors looking at all the data and showing that there's virtually just no reason or as they'll put it, there's no, not enough evidence to say one way or the other whether saturated fat's bad for you. Hmm. So people assume it is because they've been hearing about it for so long. It's got to be bad, and yet the data just never came around. You have an interesting part of your book about lard and how we pushed you know, um, food, you know, restaurants and others from using lard uh, into using trans fats that were actually much, much worse for you. And in fact, lard is not necessarily bad for you. Well, the thing with lard and most, you know, all animal products, eggs are, or butter is a slight exception, but lard, uh, beef, bacon, you look at it, and you can, you can go to the USDA has a website where they show the dietary components of different foods, and you can just type in lard and look what lard is composed of. And the primary fat, lard is all fat, but the primary fat in fat and lard is mono um, uh, oleic acid, which is the same monounsaturated fat that's in olive oil. Wow. And then when you look at the, the saturated fat components, the saturated fat will raise HDL, your good cholesterol, but it will also raise LDL, your bad cholesterol, but not all saturated fats will. So when you look at the, satur- the components of the different types of saturated fats in lard or bacon or beef, you'll find that most of the saturated fats, they all raise HDL, but only some of them raise LDL. Hmm. And when you work out the numbers, and anyone can do this, you'll find that most of the fat in these foods that we're avoiding because they have fat or saturated fat in it, most of the fat is good fat. And if we replace these foods, I say if you replace, you know, uh, bacon and eggs for breakfast with uh, some nice, cereal, dried cereal with skim milk and a glass of apple juice and banana slices, you will actually make your heart disease risk profile get worse. And so gain more you, weight? And gain weight. And So the bacon and eggs are better for you than cereal with skim milk, apple juice, and a banana? Yeah, and this wow. is one of the reasons why this doesn't get accepted is this all goes back to, you know, as soon as you say bacon and eggs, <laughs> You're talking about the Atkins diet. Yeah. So bound up with Atkins for so long. And Atkins was just the guy who he read the literature in the 60s. He tried it. He did, you know, he, 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 he basically read the same science I did. He read it 40 years earlier. And just when the American Heart Association was really hammering on everybody should eat low-fat diets, Atkins comes out and says, hey, you should eat high-fat diets. And they respond by trying to paint him as a quack. And, and just briefly, uh, you know, people think Atkins diet, well, you know, then you just, you may lose weight, but you increase your risk of heart attack. Is that true? And no, and the point is it's not. That's what got me studying this to begin with. Hmm. Is, uh, Ten years ago, I was doing a piece for the New York Times Sunday magazine on what caused the obesity epidemic. And I came on these five studies, clinical trials that had not been published yet, but had been completed, in which they compared an Atkins diet, a high-fat, high-saturated fat diet, in which you could eat as much as you like. So basically, here's a diet where you do the exact opposite of what you've been told Mm. for the past 40 years. And they compared it against an American Heart Association low-fat, low-calorie diet where you eat skinless chicken breasts and vegetables and whole grains and 
So here you, you're comparing basically the diet we're not supposed to eat to the diet we've been told to eat that's calorie-restricted. So we're, even, we're eating lots of plants and not too much of it, as Michael Pollan would say. And the Atkins diet did better every, every single study. Even though people were told they could eat as much as they want, they lost weight, which seems to refute the idea that it's all about calories, and their heart disease risk factor profiles got better in every single case. And it's just... What about, like, diabetes, hypertension, cancer rates? I mean, I don't know if that's been studied, but... Well, they didn't study them in those trials. And to, do, to look at those factors, you have to run the studies for 10, 20 years. Mm. You need tens of thousands of subjects instead of 50 or 100. But every diabetes risk factor improves because basically what you're doing, all the risk factors that are associated with diabetes are carbohydrate-driven. Mm. And the medical community realizes that today, but they are still hooked on the saturated fat notion. So they try to compromise. And one of the interesting things is HDL, you know, the good cholesterol. Um, <clears throat> it's, um, you can now find in the literature, like there was a famous study that came out of the Harvard School of Public Health. It was written by people who really are ultimately believe that a low-fat diet is a healthy diet. And a low-fat, low-calorie diet, low-fat diet lowers HDL levels, so it makes you, HDL is worse increases your risk of heart disease. And these people actually in their study referred to HDL as a biomarker of carbohydrate consumption. So HDL is the single best marker of heart disease risk. In women, it's almost the only one that matters. If your HDL is high, you're not going to get a heart attack. And these people are saying HDL is a biomarker of carbohydrate consumption, meaning the more carbohydrates you consume, the lower your HDL. So they're out there pushing low-fat, high-carb diets, even though in their paper they're acknowledging that a high-carb diet will lower your HDL, and high HDL is the best sign that you won't have a heart attack. It's, it's crazy. Wow. Like, you read this literature, and, you know, there's a whole world. I have all these friends now on the Internet who, you know, analyze this science, and they're all pulling our hair out saying, how can they say things? Speaking of the Internet and what's out there, one of the things that has been uh, prevalent over the last couple of years, actually just a little over a year, a, a lecture by uh, physician Robert Lustig uh, has become an Internet sensation. It's called Sugar, the Bitter Truth, and he cites years of medical research uh, specifically focusing in on sugar and, uh, its res- and, and, and its effects on the body. What do you make of this uh, this lecture, and also the fact that it has gotten so much traction on the Internet. Well, yeah, Dr. Lustig is a fascinating guy, and I know him now. And as you pointed out, I had a cover story in the New York Times Magazine a month ago called Is Sugar Toxic? And the lead of this story was Rob Lustig and his lecture. What makes it so interesting is in the 1960s, the leading British nutritionist was a, a Dr. John Yudkin. He's a leading European nutritionist. And... <clears throat> He was arguing that sugar was a cause of heart disease, diabetes, obesity, and he was, you know, doing study after study showing this. And but it clashed with this dietary fat idea. And I told you this fellow Ansel Keys, who was behind the dietary fat idea, was very zealous. And Keys basically ridiculed Yudkin in a paper that was widely distributed. And by the mid nineteen, late nineteen seventies, Yudkin had almost been run out of nutrition science for his beliefs that sugar was bad. And by the 1980s, as one USDA uh, researcher told me, to study 
sugar in the diet and claim that it could be bad for you was people would say, oh, you're just like Yudkin, you're a quack. Even though the science, again, continued to support every study done, and research was still done in a lot in Switzerland, um, you know, showing that sugar had all these very deleterious effects, particularly on the liver. And then Rob Luskin comes along, and, and he's a specialist on PD on childhood obesity. He's an endocrinologist. He studies hormones. He starts reading the literature, reads this, you know, about fructose, decides this could be the fundamental cause and gives this very powerful lecture at UC San Francisco in, I think it was July 2009, mm-hmm. or May 2009, it's put on the Internet, in which he just refers to, to sugar as toxic, as a poison, really the bluntest possible terms. Because the argument he's making, and I've been making, is that if sugar didn't exist in our diets, we wouldn't have obesity, we wouldn't have diabetes, we wouldn't have most cancers. Cancer would be a rare disease. Wow. Alzheimer's, actually I was lecturing at the University of Cincinnati on Monday, and a professor of uh, psychiatry and behavioral neuroscience came up to me afterwards and scolded me for not making the link between Alzheimer's and sugar and insulin strong enough. Hmm. You know, something that I thought, okay, I could talk about cancer in this story. Um, and I'm pushing the envelope, but I'm going to just mention that Alzheimer's in one place and leave it out. But there is reason to believe it may or may not be correct, okay? But you can make a powerful argument that sugar is the cause of all these, what they're called diseases of civilization or diseases of Western diet. My guest is Gary Tobbs. He is an award-winning science journalist whose book is called Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It. Now, in part one of our interview, you had mentioned that a bowl of oatmeal with fruit and juice was less healthy than a plate of bacon and eggs for breakfast. And I wanted to quote for you and our listeners what the company Quaker Oats says on its website. Uh, They say, Quaker Oats are simply good for your heart. Three grams of soluble fiber daily from oatmeal in a diet low in saturated fat and cholesterol may reduce the risk of heart disease. They also recommend the following diet to prevent heart disease. They say a heart-healthy diet is one that is filled with fresh fruits and vegetables, whole grain breads and cereals, lean cuts of white meat, poultry, fish, and low-fat or fat-free dairy products. That sounds in line with the conventional wisdom. When people hear that, most people are going to react uh, saying, well, yeah, that sounds about right. What's wrong with this picture? Well, what's wrong with this picture is that, um, first of all, when researchers actually do clinical trials comparing the diet that Quaker Oats just described to and a low-calorie version of it. So not only do you eat exactly the lean meats and the white meats and the fresh fruits and vegetables and the you know low-fat dairy and the grains, but you consciously restrict how many how many calories you can eat. So you only eat, say maybe two thirds of what you would prefer to eat, and then you compare that diet to a diet of you know what's supposed to kill us in theory. Um, bacon and eggs for breakfast and high-fat dairy products, cheeses in particular, and a lot of fatty meat. Um, you know, the, a diet that's, that's been bound up in this idea that it's the Atkins diet. So you compare those two diets in a clinical trial. You take, you know, 100-odd overweight, obese subjects. You randomize them to two groups. One eats our Quaker Oats healthy diet. The other eats all this artery-clogging, saturated fats and colon cancer-causing meats. 
and then you run them out for a year, and you see what happens, and you find out that the people who ate the, the, the fat meat diet do better. I mean, their heart disease risk factors are better. They're, um, they're, you know, they weigh less. Um, and, you know, in theory, when, when I lecture on this and I decide I'm going to be particularly immature and piss off my audience before I even start, and I say, you know, let's just pretend this is a science here. In a science, what you do is you do experiments, and then you kind of live by the results you get. And what I just described was an experiment that you would do to test which of these two diets are healthier, and the saturated fat, the fatty meat diet comes out healthier effectively every time they do this. Hmm. Well, there was, uh, just to stay on this issue again, because w- what you're saying right now and what you say in your book goes against so much of conventional wisdom about food and its effects on our body that I'm sure our listeners now are even uh, thinking, well, th- how is this possible? I mean, we hear everywhere from nutritionists, from personal trainers, and of course, doctors, uh, articles in magazines that uh, the conventional wisdom of low uh, fat uh, and relatively high carb diet is the way to go. There's an article about the Atkins diet, which is this meat-heavy diet uh, that I want to quote from called the Atkins Paradox, which I think accurately reflects people's feelings towards a meat-heavy diet. It says, so why not go with Atkins if you can lose weight and eat bacon? The reason most doctors say is because there's something perverse about the Atkins diet. And he says, consider the breakfast of a gentleman on the Atkins diet whom I encounter each morning on a commuter train eating an entire block of bologna right out of the package with one hand and washing it down with a Diet Coke in his other hand. Between the salt, fat, and artificial additives in the lunch meat and soda, this simply can't be healthy. Consider, too, the mountains of data associating heart disease and cancer with diets high in saturated fat, the kind of fat found in beef and pork. This is why the U.S. government, despite intense lobbying from the meat industries, recommends diets low in saturated fat. Some studies have shown that acidity from a high animal protein diet might cause osteoporosis, an interesting fact considering that Robert Atkins diet as a result of a skull fracture from slipping on the ice. Um, okay, so there's a lot of stuff in there. Let's first talk about the perversity of a meat-heavy diet, according to this person. It, it, what is, you know, and, and of course the... Well, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, for starters, he starts off with this rhetorical trick. So he equates the Atkins diet with this fellow he sees eating a block of bologna and a Diet Coke. And fundamentally what we're saying here, the argument I'm making in the books is that... Um, you know, that a diet rich in animal products is a healthy diet and a diet rich in fat is a healthy diet. You know, and you don't have to go anywhere near a chunk of bologna. I could have made the same argument about the diet that that we were talking about a second ago, the, the, the quintessential healthy diet, and said I saw that person eating a box of, um, you know, uh, cocoa puffs. With full of sugar, but it's low in fat, and drinking a diet coke with it, and then and then use that argument to make the claim that the 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 government's recommended diet is unhealthy, or the USDA food guide pyramid is unhealthy. Um, you know, so what the, the fundamental argument we're making here is it's not about the Atkins diet. I mean, I I have great respect for what Atkins did, and I wish I was the kind of person who could leave him out of my book mm. because he comes with all this baggage. Right. All he recognized in the 1960s is that carbohydrates are fattening. And 
foods absent carbohydrates, foods made of protein and fat, and in fact mostly fat, because the fat actually stim- does not is the one nutrient that doesn't stimulate insulin secretion, as we talked in the last mm-hmm. segment. Insulin is what determines fat accumulation. So the fundamental discussion here is whether carbohydrates are fattening. And if they are, then a diet absent carbohydrates, especially if you're overweight and obese, if you are predisposed to put on fat, the healthiest possible diet is probably, and it would be nice if the government got this point so they would do the necessary tests so that I could say, you know, assuredly instead of probably, um, that, that, that diet rich in animal products is probably the healthiest diet there is. And when you talk about the conventional wisdom, you know, what I described in my first book, more than my second, in Good Calories, Bad Calories, The conventional wisdom was flipped in the 1960s. So what we consider the conventional wisdom is 50 years old today, now, and it is the exact opposite of what it used to be. And it is the product of bad science. And when a writer like that says there are mountains of studies, there are actually not mountains of studies. Yeah, he said specifically there are mountains of data associating heart disease and cancer with diets high in saturated fat, the kind of fat found in beef and pork. That's not true? That's simply not true. And in fact, as I point out in the latest book, in the past year there have been... uh, Two meta-analyses done, one by a group um, that includes researchers from Harvard Medical School, Harvard School of Public Health, and the Oakland Children's Hospital Research Institute, and the other by uh, New Zealand researchers employed by the World Health Organization to look specifically at this issue, and both of them concluded that there is not enough evidence to make a statement about saturated fat being unhealthy. And this is 50 years after the American Heart Association decided there was. Hmm. Okay, so in 50 years, you know, if you take unbiased observers and ask them to review the data, what you get is it's just not there. Now, he also, this author also goes on to say, most humans for the past several millennia have eaten a diet largely comprising grains, seeds, and vegetables, that is carbohydrates, with a little meat. Country by country, populations become obese when they adopt an American diet high in animal fat and simple sugars. What's your critique of that statement? Well, it is true indeed that for the past uh, 8,000 years, um, country, you know, since the beginning of agriculture, cultures have lived mostly uh, high-carb diets. Actually, one of the um, you know, fundamental transitions in human history is from diets high in fat and protein and animal products to diet high in carbohydrates. And when this happened, actually, Jared Diamond, the uh, you know, award-winning anthropologist, the best-selling author of Guns, Germs, and Seals, he called this the worst mistake in human history. Hmm. And you can actually document in populations that make the shift from hunter-gatherer diets that we had followed for the two million years previously to, um, you know, agrarian diets, to uh, agriculturalists, that they become less healthy. So the the advent of industrial agriculture played a big role there? Well, there are two changes. First is the shift to agriculture, the invention of agriculture. And then there's the shift to industrialized agriculture and the refinement of the foods. And what we're talking about is not green vegetables being unhealthy because green vegetables have a very you know green leafy vegetables have a very relatively low carbohydrate content most of the carbs in them are indigestible fiber we're talking about the refinement of the carbs so the refinement of uh high fructose corn syrup from corn or sugar 
from sugar cane or beets, um, you know, white flour from grain, and it's this process of refining that takes the carbohydrates, gets rid of all the protective fiber around it, gets rid of the protein that comes with it, and turns it into something that can be consumed in huge doses extremely quickly. And it's the speed at which we digest these refined carbs, these easily digestible carbs, and the, um, the, uh, the, the, the dosage at which we can consume them. You know, the, uh, the eight-ounce glass of apple juice is the equivalent sugar of about, you know, four or five medium-sized apples. So when... So you could, when people talk about the Western diet being introduced into some of these countries, uh, perhaps they should be singling out the carbs and sugar part of the diet, oh, but not the meat the part so of the diet. So if somebody has a vegetarian bent, as this author seems to, mm-hmm. um, you're going to single out high-fat meat um, Sugar and carbs, and he actually, I read that article you sent it to me, it does indeed talk about um, sugar and carbs being the problem, a problem that everyone agrees with, but you can find populations that lived exclusively or almost exclusively on animal products, Um, the Native Americans of the Great Plains, the Inuit, the the pastoralists in Africa, like the Maasai, and these populations didn't have any of the chronic diseases that beset us today. So it's hard to blame this problem on meat consumption when you could look into the historical data and find populations that ate only meat that didn't have cancer, for instance. So if you're going to blame meat, again, this is a science. So if your hypothesis is meat-eating causes cancer, you might say if we find a population that only eats meat, they will have high cancer rates. And as it turns out, populations that only ate meat didn't have any cancer. So that's a refutation of the hypothesis. This is what I've been doing in my books, saying this is a science. We can treat it scientifically. And when we do, what we, the conclusion we come to is that it's the, the, the refined, easily digestible carbs and sugars that cause obesity, diabetes, heart disease, cancer, um, possibly Alzheimer's as well. My guest is Gary Tobbs. He is the author of Good Calories, Bad Calories, and we're discussing his latest book, Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It. Uh, So what about populations that have traditionally been vegetarian? In your book, you talk uh, briefly about people on the Hindu vegetarian diet. Do you see the host of Western diseases in those diets, or is it possible to have a wholly vegetarian diet and not have these diseases associated with weight gain like uh, diabetes, cancer, etc.? Well, the, 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 the data aren't good. I mean, the, the, the data that this, for instance, this uh, article we were just talking about mm-hmm. relies on is if you look at populations, big populations in the United States, and, just, and, uh, and a lot of people do it. It's called observational epidemiology. So you establish uh, what's called a cohort that you're going to follow. For instance, the, the American Association of Retired Persons has such a cohort that they, they follow with the National Cancer Institute. So it's 500,000 older Americans, and you, figure, you ask them what they eat, and you give them these questionnaires, and then you follow them for 20 years, and you see what happens to them. And what you'll find out is that vegetarians uh, live longer and have less chronic disease rates right. than, the, the chron- than the meat eaters. But these studies are um, fundamentally flawed. Again, it's, it's, what you're seeing is a correlation between being a vegetarian and being a meat eater. 
and disease rates, but the vegetarians are very different than meat eaters. They're different types of people. And when you look and you could easily, they're, they're actually higher socioeconomic class. They're more educated. They're more health conscious in general. Many of these vegetarians became vegetarians because they were health conscious. So they have other beneficial health healthy behaviors, like they will stay away from sugar and sweets. They'll eat um, whole grain breads instead of white breads. So there's a lot of differences. Um, and you, the only uh, scientifically valid purpose for those kinds of correlations is to, to, to create a hypothesis. Our hypothesis is that a vegetarian diet is healthier than a meat-eating diet, and then we can test it. And as I said, when those tests are done, it doesn't actually play out the way the hypothesis would predict. Sure. So one can have a one can be a meat eater and have an unhealthy diet if you happen to consume lots of sugars with your meat. One exactly. can be a vegetarian and, and have an unhealthy uh, and have a healthy diet if you stick to better carbs, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. And the point I make and why we get fat is that there are there are fattening carbs which are the refined carbs and sugars, and there are non-fattening carbs. Although if you're very predisposed to put on weight, mm-hmm. if you put on weight easily, you're already obese or overweight, you've been obese or overweight for uh, 10, 20 years, and you switch to a purely vegetarian diet, you're still going to get a lot of your calories from carbohydrates. And it may not be enough of a change to prevent the progression into, for instance, diabetes or, you know, full-blown obesity. And this is a tricky subject. Right. You know, getting back to the, the Indian, like the Hindu diet, it's one of the points I, I make in um, Good Calories, Bad Calories, that back, I think it was 1907, the British Medical Association had a uh, meeting at their annual uh, conference on the diabetes problem in India. This was still in the days of the Raj when the British were unfortunately running things. But, and they pointed out that there were a lot of populations in India that had very high rates of obesity and diabetes, even the vegetarians. But the ones that had the highest rates were the ones that were living the most like Westerners. And they were eating probably the most sugar as well and the most you know, refined carbohydrates instead of more traditional Indian diets. So again, it, it, you know, the point I'm making in, in my books is that it, it, a healthy diet is a diet absent sugar, white flour, and the more easily digestible carbs like star, uh, potatoes. Um, but one, if you can get rid of the sugar and the flour, that's the fundamental determinant of what makes a healthy diet, whether the rest is vegetarian or you know, omnivore or carnivore. Well, a couple more questions on the issue of the meat-heavy diets, uh, because it's, you know, anathema to people who are health conscious and who haven't read your book, uh, who might say, well, don't meat-heavy diets uh, strain your organs like your kidneys, aren't they? Don't they? And there's this assertion that it can lead to osteoporosis. What, what, are, what is up with these uh, critiques? Is there any reality there? Um, again, I think they're all based on the same sort of uh, flawed observational data. Mm-hmm. I've never tried. The problem is if you want to do a clinical trial um, to see if osteoporosis forms on a meat-heavy diet, you've got to run the trial for you know, 20, 30 years. So it's not enough to just cite Atkins's death? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So and that's you know, the way the medical community deals with the kind of Atkins trials that I've been describing is they say, look, we have so much evidence, like this are, we have so much evidence out there that meat is bad and saturated fat is bad. Now, none of them have actually looked at that evidence, but they believe it's there because it's what they've been told. And 
we have so much evidence, and now we've done a study that shows that this diet is healthy or even healthier for a year or maybe two years, so we can recommend it if you want to lose weight or control your diabetes for a year or two, but after that, we don't know. Hmm. After that, we still think it's going to kill you. And again, the, you know, my job in life is not just to, to talk to the lay people, but um, you know, people just want to to be lean and be healthy and not have diabetes, but I've also, you know, trying to get the, the medical researchers themselves to understand that, you know, the levels of evidence that comes from different types of studies and what they can believe and what they can't and, and what kind of tests they should do. So we could really, so people don't have to listen to a journalist right. when they want to lose weight and live, you know, live healthy. <laughs> so, uh, Gary, one of the uh, things, questions that I'm sure is uh, uppermost in the minds of some of our listeners is if you're recommending a meat-heavy diet, there are so many issues, social uh, and environmental issues that come with that. Let's first uh, just talk about one of those, which is the environmental impact there, you know, because of the way in which our industrial agricultural system is around. And the way in which our uh, in industrial meat production happens, it is uh, pretty clear, I think, that, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, that, that it is environmentally not very good for our planet uh, to have meat consumption increase and that producing vegetables for consumption is a lighter carbon footprint. Yeah, I, that, that may be true. Um... But it's one of these issues where the, the data, for instance, if you look at the EPA, uh, Environmental Protection Agency, they did a report on the uh, environmental impact of different industries back in, I think, it was 2006, 2007. And they came up with an entirely different number for the uh, impact of, the, of meat eating on the environment, on greenhouse gases, and did a report published by the World Health Organization a year or so later. And one of the things that I would argue about this simply, you know, we'll say that the World Health Organization published a report, the EPA published a report. These reports are done usually by two or three people. And they're done based on assumptions that these people think are reasonable but may or may not be. And it's hard to imagine the subject in which one government report, especially by the EPA or the World Health Organization, would be considered somehow definitive. And yet what's happened, this subject of whether meat-eating is healthy, whether it's ethically uh, just, whether you can justify it ethically and morally, whether it's good for the environment, incites such uh, almost religious beliefs that a single World Health Organization study can be cited as though it is literally, you know, the Word of God. Um, excuse me, figuratively, the Word of God. Um, you see there are uh, some uh, professor of agriculture at UC Davis uh, about a year ago came out with a report showing the flaws in the World Health Organization study that said that, that meat-eating uh, constitutes something like 18% of all greenhouse gases. And the World Health Organization authors, as I understand it, agreed that those flaws were, were true. So, but it's one of these things that nobody is really going to study in any detail, unless the meat industry itself, the beef industry, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, decides they're going to fund a study to see what they think is the right numbers. And if they fund such a study and it comes out as the beef industry might wish it did, people are going to say, well, look who funded it. You can't right. trust them. And indeed, 
there's some legitimacy to that point. So it's one of these arguments where you may indeed be right, but there are count, there's evidence contrary to what you've said, and it's so contentious that I'm wondering if truth can ever be achieved. The question I wanted to, to get to in my book is what constitutes a healthy diet. Because it's not just if you are going to justify, uh, uh, for instance, a vegetarian diet based on the, inv- on, on the idea, as, for instance, Jonathan Safran Foer does in his book, Eating Animals. He says, look, I'm going to, not only do I believe this is the only morally and ethically justifiable diet, I am going to feed it to my children, and I can do that because I've looked at the research, and the research also suggests this is the healthiest diet. And I'm saying if he looked at the research, which is much critical, I, as he did the way animals are treated by factory farming operations, he might have come to a different conclusion. And then he might have different thoughts about how best to feed his children. Well, uh, let's talk about a couple of diets that are often cited as uh, being models of healthfulness, the Mediterranean diet, which is certainly, you know, the the people imagine Italians eat lots of pasta, and then the Japanese diet, people eat lots of rice. How is it that those uh, diets are considered healthy? And don't those populations traditionally, even if that's changing now, have low rates of the diseases associated with obesity? Well, the Japanese will dispense with quickly. They eat, uh, have always traditionally ate very little sugar. Um, Southeast Asians in general have eaten very little sugar. Um, the Japanese eat about a quarter of the sugar, and by sugar I mean sucrose and whatever uh, mm-hmm. high fructose syrups they consume. Mm-hmm. Um, a quarter of this that we do, and that enough is enough to explain their good health. And the introduction of refined carbs, white rice, for instance, instead of brown rice, is relatively new for the bulk of the population. It's 50, 60 years old. Um, So that by itself is enough. And then it's funny, I, I hear from people in Japan all the time, and half of them say, why are these people so healthy? They eat so much rice. And the others say, I'm in Japan, and they eat much less rice than you would have thought. Hmm and a lot of animal products, wow. a lot of meat and fish. And the rice they eat is like a little bowl of rice, you know, this sort of uh, ice cream, as just described by a friend of mine who's married to a Japanese uh, architect. This was just, you know, last week. So, you know, they eat like an ice cream scoop portion of rice a day. And then they're eating virtually no sugar, so why do people keep talking about high, high, how high-carb the diet is? Um, the Mediterranean diet is not the Italian diet. It's not the pasta diet that's supposedly the healthy diet. It is the Greek diet on the island of Crete in the late 1940s and early 19, and 1950s when this diet was studied. And at the time, they too ate virtually no sugar. Their desserts were sweetened by honey, and they didn't eat a lot of that. And they ate no white flour whatsoever. So one of the points I'm making is if you look at diets that are considered healthy, um, you know, the diets where people, for instance, the, the, the Swiss have among the, the, longest, um, the, the longest lifespans in the world. I think they're in the top three. In the Swiss, the two national dishes are fondue, which is melted cheese, and raclette, which is melted cheese on a plate. <laughs> um, nobody would argue that the Swiss eat high-carbohydrate diets, but what you find that's consistent with all these diets is they eat very little sugar, and the... Carbs they do eat tend not to be highly refined. 
Well, Gary Tobbs, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your insight with us. Well, thank you again for having me on. You've been listening to an hour-long special with Gary Tobbs, award-winning science journalist, contributing correspondent for Science Magazine, and a Robert Wood Foundation investigator in health policy research at the University of California, Berkeley School of Public Health. We've been discussing his new book, Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It. His earlier book was called Good Calories, Bad Calories. For Sonali's subversive thought for the day, Gary Tobbs said in his new book, What sets science and the law apart from religion? is that nothing is expected to be taken on faith. That's Gary Tobbs. That's Anali Subversive Thought for the day. You've been listening to Uprising. Martina Steiner is our assistant producer. You can order a copy of today's show at 1-800-735-0230 or at pacificaradioarchives.org. You can also listen to the show online, rate segments, and leave comments at uprisingradio.org. I'm your host and producer, Sonali Gohatkar. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you tomorrow at 8. Step rope bound to